you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 5. If you haven't gotten one of these brochures at all in this series yet, so if you got one earlier, please don't ask for one now because I printed 200 of them so that anybody who didn't get one could get one. Just raise your hand. There should be some people ready to bring them to you. This is uh, the brochure we got at the beginning of the series like 17 weeks ago. All right. This is the last sermon in this series that we're doing on like what is High Point Church? What are we doing together? What is the point of this? And so forth. And um, I might come in a little hot this morning, like landing on an aircraft carrier, so just be ready for that. Um, also, I'm running, I was writing four talks this last week, so um, anyway, just so you know. Um, as a church, like, we have a set of things that we say and that we have written down so we know what we're doing, right? We, we try to do those things. And at the same time, I kind of have this ethos where I see a hand up here. Well, this, it'd be great if it's an altar call. Um, where the vibe is, we're just trying to be a great local church. We don't have to have this intercontinental vision. God didn't ask you to change the world. That's not, that's nowhere in the Bible. The hope is that we will, but that's not what we were told to do. Does that make sense? Um, recently, I'm, I'm going to let you in on a confidential secret. Um, this is, I, I pulled a couple of text messages out of um, some text messages Mike Beresford sent to me, our executive pastor. And um, he sent this to me right after a staff prayer meeting where we were praying about the congregation and what we're doing and that kind of stuff. I want to read it to you before I get into some of the other stuff. He said this, Nick, I just wanted to encourage you. As Jill Reese was praying through Isaiah 61 in our staff prayer this morning, it occurred to me that in 2008, High Point was known for being a church that was hurting, dwindled, and divided. In 2023, High Point is known for its biblical integrity and building ministries that unify and build a whole church outside its walls. Not only are we relatively healthy, but God has brought out of High Point Impact Christian Schools, which has doubled the number of students under Christian instruction in the Dane County area, the Oaks Collaborative Ministry that's putting on a major conference on healing just this weekend, capable pastors going out and serving in churches, one of whom is finally coming back to serve at High Point, supportive gathering for ministry leaders in a time when more ministry leaders are leaving the ministry than any other, cross-cultural ministry with majority um, Black and Hispanic ministries, such that um, Pastor Pedro's church, Casa de Fe, they had their big leaders banquet in Micah, the Micah Center, this weekend. I know because I got a call at like 6.45 because it was too hot in there. We had to figure out how to get it cooler. <laughs> right? The Madison area young adults, one of the reasons. Um, so like Haley's not here, uh, Nellie's not here. There's 200 younger people from churches all over Madison. I think it's like 12 or 15 churches. 200 people meeting in a, in a, um, a retreat this weekend. I don't know where. I don't know what they're doing because I'm not in charge, right? But Madison Area Young Adults got started from leaders from this church and city church, right? Paxton is gathering youth pastors together to encourage them. Gwen is gathering children's pastors together. One of our tech staff is starting a media company. And our people are presently, virtually, in every Christian gathering doing good work in our city and region. He said, I think God is well pleased in that unity. As a visionary leader, I've struggled in my seven years here to know what our purpose is other than just being a church. In hindsight, our purpose has been to bring unity to the church in Madison in a variety of different ways, through a variety of different people. We've struggled to articulate our vision, but I believe God has been articulating our vision all along. And what's even more exciting is that I know that this is something that he relishes, purposeful unity. It's been so much more than a program or an institution. 
I feel like that's what I've been trying to do. I was like, you get it. It's only took it's seven years. You got it, right? But partly because, like, when you're trying to do something as a group of people, that's like, looks almost sometimes more like a movement than a church. Because look, look around. Do you know everybody? Does it feel like a family? Do you know everybody like you would know people in your family, right? It's like, there's some point where local churches function a little bit more like movements than families. Like, the family feel the local church happens, like, in small groups, and Bible studies, and things like that, volunteer groups. And so we have to have things like a brochure, which feels really tacky. I mean, can you imagine Jesus, like, giving one of his sermons? You know, he's just like, someday churches are going to have brochures about this. <laughs> How inspired everybody would be. Like, oh my gosh, there's going to be brochures, you guys. But, like, this is what we believe in. Like, we have to summarize things down and try to make things clear. And so, like, this idea that, like, everything that we do needs to be gospel-centered. Everything needs to have biblical integrity. What we are together is a formational community. What we're here to do together in Jesus is to sacrificially serve others. And that we have to do it with contextualization. We have to like know how people are feeling and what questions they're really asking and try to really meaningfully engage with those things, right? Like, it looks really dry on this page, but it's, these are really critical things that summarize the things that Jesus taught. And then like, well, like, what are we doing strategically? Like, we have to keep sharing the gospel because evangelism is at the heart of what we're doing. And we have to develop leaders because the people of God always seem to do as well as their leaders are doing. And we need to mend division. We need to we need to pursue real unity in the church, right? And then if we have some wherewithal to do it beyond just our walls, how are we going to invest this stuff? And it's like, well, we want to be a teaching church. We want to raise up pastors, interns, ministry people, and elders, right? Because listen, okay, let me do it a little bit. How many people have come to High Point Church in the last year? Raise your hand. Okay. How many people have come to High Point Church in the last three years? Raise your hand. How many people have been here more than 10 years? Okay. Now, generally speaking, when we do our, um, our survey each year, uh, the number of people who have been here like 10 years or more is very similar to the group of people who have been here three years or less. Because as one pastor in Minneapolis says, the, some of these Midwestern cities, it's like preaching to a parade. The, 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 your church may stay the same size, but the people that are in it keep changing, Right? But what that means is, is that if we're empowering people to be great small group leaders, great church elders, great deacons, Bible study leaders, people who know how to interpret the scripture and share the message of Christ with others, people who are growing in spiritual maturity so that they can help others grow, then instead of taking that as like this big hit to our egos that like, man, we got to like do crazy ministry. We're just going to shrink and die in 12 years, right? We can realize that we're planting seeds of Christian growth and ministry throughout the whole world. People go here from here everywhere, Right? We have to think like, like we're a basic training camp that send people all over the world. Does that make sense? And so we're a teaching church. I want to say we gave more than a half million dollars to global ministries last year. This group of people, you just look around. You and the people coming here next service, which is fewer than this. Um, we gave more than a half million dollars to the work of God all over the world. Some of it like saved people from starving to death. Like when India clamped down during COVID and wouldn't let food get places— World organizations said, listen, more people are going to starve to death because of what we're doing to try to slow down COVID than will die of COVID, which in some countries did happen. And a number, tens of thousands of dollars that you sent to India got taken by missionaries to places the government was not allowing things to go to feed people who were going to starve to death. Does that make sense? And that money went to plant churches. And to share the gospel with all kinds of people. And some of that, and that gospel went with that food, too. Supporting churches and pastors, 
partnership developments, and ultimately, I put church plan out like, Nick, when do we plan church? The answer is we have not. But you have to put your hopeful failures on things too, right? Like, we're going to plan churches because we are supposed to make disciples. And the local church is how God instantiates that disciple-making community in each place, right? So like, I don't, I don't, I think our brochure is inspiring, right? The brochure is not inspiring, but, and so like, I feel like when you look at some of that stuff, um, it'd be really easy to be like, man, we're doing great, you guys. It's so great. Our church is so great. You could just tell everybody you're part of this great church, right? And so uh, we just went through this stuff, stuff, so look at, we're already so far ahead, right? Um, and, and I, like, I really believe in all that stuff. I think that has to be the heart of our church, but at heart, I'm a pietist. At heart, I believe, the, part of the question is, yes, but what is happening inside of us? Are we the sort of people that will do those things? Right? The, one of the huge messages in Jesus' ministry was to tell the Jewish people of which he was a part that he was bringing into this new mission, you aren't doing the things I told you to do. You have the law, you have the prophets, you have all this instruction, and you have restructured your life legalistically so that you can say to yourself that you do what you're supposed to do, but you aren't actually doing it. Like, what I said and what you're doing, they, they actually don't match. You just made them kind of look like they match. Today, all over the country, including um, just down the street at Asbury Methodist Church, United Methodist Churches, uh, the second largest denomination in America until recently, are going to vote as to like what kind of history, what kind of future they're going to have as a people. John Wesley in the 1700s said about this, about the Methodists, he said, listen, I have no doubt, my fear for us is not that we will cease to exist from the face of the earth. My fear is that the day will come in which we will be nothing but a dead sect. My concern during my tenure at High Point is not that we're going to dwindle and close our doors. That's not, that's not the, like the fear deep inside of me that I think is connected to reality. My concern is whether or not our hearts and our actual relationships with the God who exists and who has saved us in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ is so churning and working in us in our belief in him, in our belonging in him, in our moving and living and having our being in him, that these things flow out of us in an organic reality that, that arrests people with its maturity and authenticity. I want to read for you Jesus. This is Jesus' most famous sermon. He has some good ones. Um, and this is just the beginning of it. It's three chapters long, but this is how he starts. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus' concern for his people. You know, all the stuff I talked about last week about worldliness, that's the next chapter. Jesus is going to get to the via negativa, the negative thing that has to be said in the next chapter. The chapter four, he talks about who, who we're meant to be. And he's very clear that we are to be a earthly people of heavenly life and perspective. The kinds of things that he says in these words are blessed, are not blessed or praised and rewarded in the order of this world. Virtually every one of these appeals to a future divinely created reality that is not going to happen unless there is a God who exists, who is king over all things, and will bring it about in its time. It points forward to another time where things will operate very differently. And it speaks to a people who believe that so strongly that they order their lives and their passions against the present moment in a completely different way that will not be respected, that will be persecuted and hated, and false evil will be spoken against because they believe so deeply that things are not going to continue this way at some point. That the God of creation will take back his own in no act of tyranny because it is his, and he will reorder things the way they were meant to be in his own purpose, and they will be by this order. That peacemakers will be called the children of God. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And that when, therefore, in this moment, when you are treated in any way because of me, Jesus says, you should rejoice. It, it actually means you're on the right track. Right? That is, and if you move ahead to Revelation at the very end of the New Testament, Jesus is again speaking to his church, except now he's died, risen from the dead, and the, and the gospel has gone out, and now he's in the continent of what we now call Turkey, and he's speaking to churches there. And in each case, he's, he talks about how proud he is of each of those churches, because they're standing most of the time in significant persecution. They're counterculturally sharing the message of Jesus. They're intercultural churches, and they are believing in the message of the cross, and they're, they're serving each other sacrificially, and they're standing against false teaching. And Jesus, and Jesus commends them for it. But in every case, he says, listen, you need to be careful about this one thing. And in a lot of cases, it's different things, right? But one of the things that he's making clear here is he's saying, listen, you guys, the most important thing is that you don't lose your distinguishing feature. There, is, there, there are a certain set of features that are to distinguish those who belong to Jesus from the entire face of the earth. So much so that if the earth was a kitchen, you would be recognized as the salt and nothing else would be recognized as salt. That if there was a huge expanse of beautiful plains and there was one hill with a city on top of it, they would know you are that city. 
And that if they were in a dark house and somebody lit a lamp and they put it up on something and it shined in the whole house, they would know that you are that light. That it would be arresting, that it would be distinguishing, that there's a distinguishing feature to people who really belong to Jesus. And it is that they live according to an order that does not exist on this earth. There are people who stand in the face of the order of this world and they behave as though it is not as real as another one they carry in their souls. And it is a miracle. And it is extraordinary. And it's not just that they're like, they're like, you know, they come to things on time. It's not like that. It is, it is strange. And it is profound and it is painful, right? I want to say what, there's three of these, I think, that come out in this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and in the teachings of the apostles that make Christians distinct if we belong to Jesus. And it's way more important than the stuff on this because none of this matters. This is what we could do with our distinguishing feature. But none of this matters if we don't have our distinguishing feature, right? And the first is, is to tell the truth in Christ. To live as open witness to the other order that is supposed to be the order of this world, but that the world is rebelling against, and that it will be ultimately subjected to by the Lord who comes into his own. And that we are the ambassadors of that truth, that we are the livers of that truth, we are the rebels against this wrongly instantiated rebellion, and yet we are the inviters, not the judgers, of those who could come. And so we speak the truth of the gospel and evangelism, Jesus said in the Great Commission, he said, listen, all heaven and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Right? No, nobody's ever going to be able to tell you not to preach the gospel, not to tell the truth about how the world can be reconciled to me through my death and resurrection. It also means, means that we tell the truths that God has told us that the world doesn't live according to, which includes what people generally call justice or mercy. That is the good that the order of this world rejects. Mercy is good, whether or not this world gives it. And we don't have to say, accept Jesus as your personal Savior in every instance. Sometimes we start with saying, that is unmerciful and mercy is a good. Forgiveness is a good. It would do you well and all of us well for us to forgive each other. We shouldn't speak to somebody who has dignity in that way. Even if you're angry at them, even if you think they're doing wrong. We have to find a mature, articulate, and compelling way to speak in the maturity of who we are as people with dignity, speaking to people who have dignity. Those truths about what should be the case, what we owe each other, i.e. justice, and what we should give each other for the other's good, i.e. mercy, those functioning in proper unity with humility being love, is that which we bear witness to. And however possible, whenever possible, bringing it back to its source, which is the giver of mercy, the establisher of justice, the one who died on our behalf, Jesus, crucified and risen, offering salvation to all who would come to him, who will ultimately bring about a kingdom of justice through his mercy. And we bear witness to that. Which sometimes means speaking against certain political actions or corporatist actions or people in our lives that we have to rebuke morally and being willing to give mercy in how we treat our enemies and the people we disagree with. And that that should be profoundly distinct from the lying that's in the convenient speech and the gossip that our world runs with. Right? The second thing is 
disapproval and suffering. We are a people of disapproval and suffering. And listen, you guys, I don't mean that in the Baptist sense, okay? I don't mean you're going to come to church and I'm going to disapprove of you and make sure you suffer. That's not what I mean by that. That's not what Jesus meant by that. What Jesus meant was when we live against the order of this world, we threaten people by our very existence. We threaten people by what we say. We tell them the order you live by, that you order your own emotional peace around. The reason why you think your life is okay and everything's fine and that you understand the world is because you have connected yourself to this way of being. This like, this thing that Jesus called the world. And it's, it's going away. And it's going to be judged. And it's wrong. And it's in rebellion against the world's own creator. It is inhuman and unnatural to the very bottom. And you're giving yourself and your life to a lie that you're blinded to. And when we live that way, ethically, evangelistically, by bearing witness to the truth, the reactive thing that's going to come out of the anxiety that creates in other people, much less the hatred it might create in evil men and women, is that they're just going to want to attack us. And Jesus said, listen, if you bear witness to the truth in love, if you, if you are a peacemaker and one who cares about mercy and who is meek, if you live in these beatitudes, these bearings of happiness, and in living in these, you are mistreated. Okay? So he's not saying, if you learn how to be a legalistic jerk in Jesus and people hate your guts, you're on the right track. That's not what he's saying. Notice the context. This is directly connected to the Beatitudes. Right? Meekness and peacemaking and hunger and thirsting after true righteousness. And, right? If that's what you're pursuing and that's what you're bearing witness to in the truth, and that's the gospel that you preach, and people hate you, he's like, one, that should confirm you're on the right track. But also, he said, rejoice and be glad in that day. Because the people you are then connected to are the people you want to be connected to. And so, Christian believers, from then until now, have always recognized that one of our distinctive features is to constantly suffer and be disapproved of in the world. To have our incomes limited. To have our heads cut off. Right? Valentine's Day wasn't that long ago. I love that day. Do you know what we're celebrating? That St. Valentine would told by the Romans, he couldn't marry Christians. He did it anyway in secret, and they cut his head off for it. Because nobody had the right to tell him he couldn't marry believers together to fulfill the creation mandate and to love Christ and to order and demonstrate what it means for Christ to love his church together in a newly formed household, which is the purpose of mankind. And whether it's Slander, whether it's people just not liking you or you being defriended or whatever, or whether it's death or disapproval at school or whatever it is, we are a people of that. And our distinctive feature is that we're okay with it. We're actually happy about it. When we actually receive it, we're like, oh, that's a good sign. And that's, and that's difficult. Listen, I, I understand that there are times where this is more intensified and less intensified. But sometimes when it's less intensified, it's not because the culture was more Christian. It's because the church had just made more peace with the culture. The church is always less persecuted when it's more worldly. 
it's usually not a good sign that people like us. And that's one of the reasons why, listen, contextualization, meeting people where they're at is on the brochure, okay? But listen, the minute we're trying to be liked, it's over. Do you understand me? The minute you let that instinct of, I want these people to open doors for me. I want these people to like me. I don't like being disliked. I don't like being called a bigot or a hateful person. I don't like being disapproved of. I don't like being told all these things. I don't like them saying I'm against science. False slander is one of the things, you guys. Listen, the minute you let yourself say, no, I need to do this because then they'll listen to me. But what that really means is they'll like what I'm saying. You've given up distinctive one, and then you've given up distinctive two. You are losing your distinctive feature. You are giving up the way of Christ. And I don't mean the, the, the way to escape that is to be as obscurantist and like culture-hating as possible. We're supposed to make whatever connections in the world with culture and people that we can and meet them on the grounds that they are. But you have to have your ducks in a stinking row. You are going to be disapproved of and disliked. At work, at college, at school, at sports teams, online, everywhere. And the thing that makes us distinct is in doing that in accordance with these teachings of loving meekness and kindness is that we can rejoice in it. When people look at us and they try to beat us up morally, intellectually, personally, physically— and they find us rejoicing. That is when we become salt and light and cities on a hill. When we just take it on the chin and get angry and keep it to ourselves and talk about it at church, we do not, we're not salt and light in a city on a hill. It is the combination of the suffering and disapproval and the rejoicing that says, I don't even believe in this world like this. I don't believe in it. I don't need your, I don't need your praise. I don't need your approval. The only person whose approval I care about is Jesus, the risen Christ, the one who is Lord and King, who's going to wipe out this treason that you are invited lovingly to leave, and he's going to bring about a world that is makarios, blessed and happy, that is according to these principles, not yours. So I don't care. In fact, I'm glad because you punishing me and hurting me tells me that I know who you are and I know who I am. I know of whom you belong to, and I know who I belong to and what I am of. The third thing is, and this is maybe the hardest and the worst, is a miraculous level of love. Friends, the world has never been won by Christian preachers, ever. No revival has happened because of the eloquent speaking of people. I mean, maybe you could argue that in the first Great Awakening, Whitfield was like especially good at that. But you know what? 20 years after Whitfield was dead, church attendance in America was less than when before he preached. He himself said it didn't last. The, the world that was won in any way to Christ was won by the blood and poverty and sacrifice of Christian believers. Do you know how many Christian missionaries went to the Scandinavian countries before they stopped slitting their throats when they arrived? Because among the Vikings, strength was glory. 
Strength to fight the trolls. Strength to fight against nature. Strength to... And these, these Christians would come and preach. These things, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the broken. And they say, we'll show you blessed are the broken. And they cut their heads up. They said, how blessed do you feel? And it was so many missionaries who went and accepted that fate of death before the first princes and kings and warriors of those cultures said, so many of them come to die. This is bravery, not weakness. And they converted. And they stopped pillaging and killing everybody, kind of. <laughs> and ultimately, and it really bothers me because my, my line of history is Anglo-Saxon. And, and it, like we were raped and pillaged to like a lot by these folks. It was a while ago, right? But it ultimately was, were those people who learned how to beat the Islamic armies that would have otherwise wiped out all of the European continent that believed in Christ. It was, it was the Normans who were the sons of raping, pillaging, slaughtering Vikings who saved Christendom with swords. Strange. In the first two centuries, when the plague came through the Roman cities, there were rules that you weren't supposed to leave your city, and all the pagans fled. They fled, and Christians stayed and nursed. Because listen, if you got the plague and somebody nursed you, you had almost a 70% chance of surviving, which sounds, I mean, it doesn't sound great, but like that's pretty good, right? But what happened was when people would get the plague, people would flee so they wouldn't get it. And if nobody nursed you when you had the plague, it was basically a death sentence. And so the Christians stayed, and they saw their children, their daughters, care for pagan neighbors who had just a few years earlier persecuted them, taken their homes, and they would go into the house and they would nurse these dying people. Their own families had left them and they would survive. And the number of people who turned to Christianity after the plagues was far greater than any preachers had ever dreamed. When God came and gave St. Francis a vision to rebuild his dilapidated church in the 11th century, when it had fallen into ruin, he didn't really start a group of preachers. He started a group of loving wanderers, people who in poverty and chastity and obedience gave up everything in this world to go out and to share the gospel and to love people in any practical way they possibly could. He started a movement of love, but not just like, well, I'll be nice to you. You can sit in my pew. Maybe I'll move over a little bit so the ushers can find a spot. It was, I will give up my entire life in this world. All of it. All of the money. All of my titles. All of my possibilities. Francis was, a ba was, was essentially a merchant prince in Assisi, and he just gave it up to live a life of love and forsaking having a wife and forsaking having money and forsaking going to plays and eating nice foods. He gave all of that up to put stone upon stone and to call people out of the death of that life to some life-giving poverty that would bring life to the world through our own death, to participate in the very body of Christ himself. And that changed a continent. And this has been true everywhere. The missionaries that went to the New Hebrides in Micronesia, ahead of John Patton. Seven minutes they were off the boat before they were killed and eaten, cooked on the beach in front of the ship that brought them there. And when a man in his 80s told John Patton, do you really want to go to the Hebrides? They're going to kill you. He said, listen, 
You're going to be in a box eaten by worms soon enough. Who cares? I'm going to go. I'm going to go do something. The willingness to sacrifice privacy and vacations and leather seats and cars and like keeping your house within two degrees of what you want it to be and like not having to be around people you don't like. Like, I, like, like the COVID technology, we are giving up our birthright for entertainment. Do you realize this? Like these little boxes and screens that we spend 20, 30 hours a week. That's leisure. That's maybe a slightly sick version of Sabbath, which is supposed to be less than one-sixth of all that we do. The work, the new creation, and the good works we were made to do is the works of love. It's so many people just have this anxiety. Well, I can't possibly go out and like, I don't even like those people. Who cares how you feel? The more you keep yourself trapped in those feelings, the more they'll dominate you and the less of you there even is. You have to find some bravery, some willingness, some desire to live according to meaning and what matters in the world and what God cares about, which is the people who are perishing in a thousand ways all around us in anxiety. And I, I had a call. I'm, I'm, I'm just having a Saturday. I got a call about Ken Middleton who ended his life this weekend. Last week after I got done preaching, I ended up talking to a lady out in the lobby who had lost her son to suicide in the last several weeks. Like, this is not a great moment. There's pain, human pain, everywhere around you, as well as in you. But there are certain ways in which the pain inside of you is harder to heal than you are capable of helping to heal the pain in somebody else by loving them. When somebody who I care about and cares about me turns to me in love, it heals me in things that I can't even sort out for myself. Just knowing somebody cares about me makes what I, the, thing, the unsolvable thing or the failure matter less and empowers me. One of the reasons why we are in such dire straits emotionally as people is because we're trying to fix ourselves. We're living inside of ourselves. Friends, the reason you have skin and hands and a nervous system is because God made you to live outside of yourself. In love of others, in compassion for them. Okay, that's the first third of the sermon. <laughs> I didn't save a lot of time for this, but let me, let me, let me try to bring this around because I, I think that there's a, there's a message that's supposed to go with this one. Because I think it's easy to hear, to hear those three things and on one level to be inspired, but like, are you, are you going to lit literally leave here and do that? Right? I mean, how do, you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you live a life where you tell people what they don't want to hear, you suffer under rejection and, dis and disapproval, that's a good spelling, and then <laughs> you give, like, you really give miraculous, sacrificial love to others, right? And I think one of the reasons why this is important is it's so easy as Christians, especially when we start talking about our brochures and what we're going to accomplish, that we, we walk away from it and we lose our emotional con connection to the actual message of Christ, which is something like this. You are the beloved flock in the very physical body of the crucified and risen Jesus, who is Christ and Lord. You are. Do you understand that he doesn't give— I think I can say this literally. 
He doesn't give a damn. I mean that theologically, literally, about what your life produces. Do you understand that? Part of his gift to you and the dignity of making you a new creation in Christ is as he's made you in a new workmanship to give you a work to do that in dignity fits what he's made you to be so that you can do it in happiness and so that it doesn't feel like toil. The work, all that we produce, the fruit of your life is all a gift from him. It's of, it's of no consequence to offer it to him. It doesn't matter. He cares about you. Don't you see? He, he loves you. You are the object of his affection. He looks upon you with this incredible pleasure. And I'm willing to bet that less than a half a dozen of people in this room who believe in Jesus can connect with that in the sort of way that will launch us into our distinctive features in Christ in a way that doesn't feel hard. So many of you feel exhausted trying to be a Christian. And it's because the you that you're trying to be a Christian with is the one that's supposed to be dead. And the spiritual life of God, which is the you that's supposed to find it easy and joyful, isn't in the driver's seat. That's why do you think the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he said, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He didn't mean he didn't have a personality or consciousness. He meant the life inside of him was so ordered to Christ that it was the very life of Christ. And guess what the life of Christ wants to do? The things of Christ. (laughs) And so it does it, albeit naturally. And that happens when you know, you feel that you're his beloved little sheep. Right? There's there's these places um, that come up, and they're easy to miss, right? In Acts Paul is going to persecute the church in Damascus, and Jesus shows up on the road and knocks him off his horse, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's, of course, going to destroy the church, is what he said. And he said, who are you, Lord? He's like, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That is, Jesus personally, individually identified with the individual Christians that Paul was going after. And that so spoke to him and affected his entire life that on two other occasions, just in the book of Acts, he quotes it to people as to why he's doing what he's doing. In Acts 2, 2028, when he's leaving the Ephesian elders and he's leaving them in charge of this large, the greatest work of God on the continent of Asia, modern-day Turkey, and he says, listen, you guys, keep watch over yourselves over all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Do you see what he understood from that? Jesus is like, it's me you're persecuting. It's me. And he said, listen, when you take up the role as an elder, when you think about what you're doing, it is the flock, it is Christ's little sheep, and he bought them. The price he paid for those sheep was not what you pay for a head of cattle, right? It's like he bought them with his own blood. His body for their body. In John 21, he says, he comes to Peter, and he says, do you love me more than these? Meaning, the friends— the lifestyle, the boat, the fishing life in this world. He says, do you love me more than this? Do you love me, Jesus? Not anything else, not a movement, not a calling, not anything else. Do you love me? And and Peter's like, yes. He's like, then feed my sheep. He does that three times. And it hurts Peter's feelings. 
But he's trying to make a point. I personally identify with them. I am them. They are so mine. Each individual one of them. I count every single one. There's no one I pass over. I touch every one as they come into the fold. And I protect them. They are mine. All of them. And if you love me, there is no version of loving me that doesn't love them. And that's easy for us to read and go, okay, Nick, I've got to be a more loving pastor. I have to be better at preaching. I've got to be better at counseling. I've got to be better at, like, helping people. I've got I to call up more volunteers. We've got to do more as a church. And I feel like you, you kind of missed the point. The point here is, yes, that's true. Peter's going to go love the church. But listen, the deeper point is I am one of those sheep. And you— if you belong to Christ, are one of those sheep. You are. Yourself. I don't care what your dad thought about you or how they treated you in school or whether you're going to get laid off at work. You are one of those sheep that Jesus purchased with his own blood. That if someone persecutes you, they persecute him. It's also true that you're his very body. And I don't, sometimes we say, well, we're the body of Christ and we all have gifts and we're all together in one group. And like, that's how a body is. Many, that's, that's what it means, but it's not all it means. When Jesus talks about us being the body of Christ, he means it literally. He looks upon you, including your physical body. And he counts it as his body, his own body. Do you understand? You are his body. You are. It says in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, people say food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. There are people in Corinth going to prostitutes, right? And they're Christians and they don't realize that's a problem. And so he says, listen, the body's not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised our Lord from the dead, meaning bodily, right? And he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you see what he's saying? You see, the word members, that we translate members from Greek, it doesn't mean a membership card. It means a body part. Like my, this part of my leg is a member of my body. Do you understand? It's a, it's my, it's a member. That is, what he's saying, he's saying, listen, why is sexual immorality bad, right? See, we read that and we go, okay, I get it. Sexual immorality is bad. I, if, 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 if union of bodies and sexuality creates a oneness, and if I'm one with Jesus, and then I do that in a way that's illicit, I'm dragging that. I see why that would be bad from his perspective. Maybe I shouldn't do that. But don't you see there's a deeper point? There's a deeper point. Your body is the body of Christ himself. Don't you understand that? Don't you see like, if you saw that, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't care about fornicating or committing adultery or going to a prostitute. Like you would, it, would, it wouldn't even occur to you if you believed that your body was the body of Christ himself. That you, in the resurrection of Christ, the raising of the body and the union that comes with his spiritual presence, that you are one with him in body. So much so, it's not mystical. It's not like, the, but Jesus is spiritually connected to me somehow. No, no, no. He is within you in such a way as that he is indwelling you bodily. Your body is about, like, if somebody hits you, they hit Christ. 
If somebody spits on you, they spit on Christ. If they fire you, they fire Christ. Do you understand? That's how he looks upon us. He's so united with us in mystical union through his death and resurrection that we carry him in and with us. He makes the same argument in Ephesians 5 talking about husbands and wives. Why should a husband, why is the way Roman husbands were able to treat their wives completely wrong? Why is the way we treat each other completely wrong? Right? He says, listen, it's because husbands need to love their wives like their wife is their own body. Why? Why, why do they have to do that? Their wives aren't their own body. Their wives should be bringing them a sandwich. That was a joke. It's okay to laugh. It's fine. Right? The reason is because we are Christ's body. Right? It's like, it's because it's a spiritual reality that Jesus is, right? He says, listen, a man feeds and cares for his body just as Christ cares for the church, right? So like, as I feed myself, so Christ feeds and cares for his own body. What is Christ's own body? It is you. You are Christ's body. Physically and literally Christ's body. And that's why it says, where the, the ellipsis is down there, this is a great mystery. How is it that you're literally the body? But you are. I, I think that we can only carry around the distinctive features of who we are as Christian believers. If we really believe that there is a heaven, that there is a king, that there is a high priest who is Jesus, the risen Christ, that you are going to die. And if we live in accordance with this world, we will live meaningless lives, but worse than meaningless, treasonous lives who care nothing for those dying and suffering around us. And that we are ourselves the the body of Christ himself, and we will, we will behave like devils. What will you do as the body of Christ himself? Right? We don't talk about this in evangelical churches very much. You go to Orthodox church, they talk about this all the time. It's all they talk about. But it's in the Bible. Everywhere. And if you and I believe that we were the very sheep of God, his very lambs, that you are his lamb. Not that you need to take care of somebody else who was his lamb, but you are his lamb. And if you believe that you are the very body of Christ himself, that whatever is done to you is done to him, it might make our distinctive features flow out of us. It might make us so desirous in our vocations and avocations to love. And it might make a lot of the other things that seem to taste sweet to us now just seem stupid. And in many cases, the difference won't necessarily be the exact things that you do. It will be who you include and how you do them. The nature and spirit by which you do each thing. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, that's it for now, I guess. So I pray that you would come and do your work. Holy Spirit, come and do your work in your people. I pray that you would help to convince us incredibly deeply that we are your lambs. We are your flock. You love us. And that we are your body. Not just in the sense that we have different gifts and like you've created a unity and diversity. We know that's true. But we pray that you take us to the full mystical sense of what it means to participate in the divine nature. 
to be your body, like you say in these passages. To know that whatever we unite ourselves with, we are uniting you with. With our physical bodies, whether that is loving our neighbor or engaging in sin. And help us to take such great pleasure in that, that we seek the, be- the life of beatitude. And that we have the distinguishing features of telling the truth and bearing witness in all things. Of gladly bearing the disapproval and suffering that comes from being yours. And that we actually live lives of miraculous love. Because we know that our brochure is just going to be stupid. That we're just going to be a dead sect if that isn't what courses through our veins. Help us to believe the whole of the gospel. In Jesus' name.